Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in the season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. Each week, we will compare notes from the week's events, connect the dots to past and present experiences and racial patterns in America, and connect with community members from many different perspectives who are themselves trying to make sense of this moment. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. I didn't grow in anger. I grew in professionalism. You can't make me out to be angry. Donald Williams, witness for the prosecution in the Chauvin trial. This week at the start of the trial, many of us have been on pins and needles. Our nerves are racked. Uh, We're finding new ways to take care of ourselves as we begin to see the cases line up and the cross-examinations from the defense. If you, like me, have been following Ms. Georgia's coverage We've had a little bit of a reprieve from watching the direct footage and the ongoings of the trial and getting some of the distillations and the way that she adds context. For some of us, we've had to turn it off completely and just hope that we get little snippets here and there for our own health. I know for myself, on Wednesday, I broke down. My wife heard me slamming things in the background, grabbing my keys and getting into the car and driving. And before I could realize what was happening, I was at 38th in Chicago, just trying to be in the space to give honor to the brother who was murdered, who now we are deliberating who he is instead of focusing on the prosecution of who did the action. That's been my week. I can only imagine what it's been like for the reporters on the ground, trying to make us out to be angry, trying to make us out to focus on the shortcomings and the hardships in our life rather than the actions done to us. That's what this week's been like for me. Let's check in with Ms. Georgia to talk about what it's been like covering this firsthand this week and some of the highlights from the trial throughout the week. Ms. Georgia, let's compare notes. What's this week been like? Give us the rundown. It's definitely been an intense week. I think the most challenging thing was looking at surveillance footage that we never saw moments before George Floyd died, seeing uh, you know him laugh and, and joke with people inside of Cup Foods uh, before the police was called. It was really intense to see our youth who have been traumatized and who are now plagued with guilt because of... Uh, the role that they played, the 19-year-old cashier who contemplated whether or not he should put the $20 on his own tab and in a split decision decided that he was going to report to his manager that he had accepted a counterfeit $20 bill and knowing Mm. that that split Mm. moment decision caused a domino effect of other actions that were totally out of his control but yet and still you can tell that he replays those moments over and over and over. Uh, Hearing his testimony of that, hearing Darnella Frazier say she stays up at night uh, talking to George Floyd, wishing that she could have done more for him. When I look at George Floyd, I look at at my dad. I look at my brothers. I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all Black. I have black, I have a black father, I have a black brother, I have black friends. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing 
to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. But it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. Hearing nine-year-old Judea say that the paramedics had to come and ask Chauvin to get his knee off of George Floyd's neck, knowing that a nine-year-old had the wherewithal to observe that, uh, you know, and it's something that I didn't even observe until uh, we saw that footage replayed in the courtroom. And I think for me, Anthony, the most challenging thing was meeting face-to-face with Judea after she testified, I had the opportunity to meet with her parents, to meet with her. And uh, she reminds me so much of, of my little girls. And, and I just can't imagine as a mother what I would do if one of my children had experienced that. I met George Floyd's daughter today. You did? She looked pretty nice. Her mom was crying. She kept saying, thank you. Thank you. What did that feel like for you? Pretty grateful. Yeah. Like, I'm a black man with a family. That could have been me under there. It affected me a lot. One point, my daughter said to me that she wasn't comfortable here. People being mean to her just because she did a good thing and they didn't do it. I feel like it took a piece of my daughter's innocence. You can find Georgia's interview with Judea Reynolds and her parents on Georgia's Facebook page, By Georgia Fort. That's B-Y Georgia F-O-R-T. I think the backstory that I've been trying to uh, digest uh, that a lot of people don't know, nine-year-old Judea, like most little kids, you know, they're so persistent. She said, I want to go to the store. I want to go to the store. Can you take me to the store? Hey, let's go to the store. Go to the store. You know how kids just, they nudge you and nudge you? And it was because of her that her 17-year-old cousin ended up in front of Cub Foods Mm. with her cell phone and was able to capture the video that we all saw. It's because of a nine-year-old being persistent and wanting to go to the store. And so... Uh, I've been trying to process that all all this week, and it's been a lot. Um, but seeing the the body camera footage of all of the different officers play out in court in the same day was an awful lot to unpack. I mean, to be honest, this week we saw footage of George Floyd dying from an aerial perspective, from the camera across the street. We saw it from... Uh, 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 beside, uh, alongside, from in front, from, I mean, from every angle, we saw over and over and over and over again, Mm. every angle, George Floyd taking his last breath. And I think that right there is what required Mm. a lot of people to unplug this week. Mm. You know, I was listening to your coverage and, and it was beautiful to see you contextualize I think one of the things that I did, I think it was on the day that Donald Williams took the stand. I um, I had to watch it because Donald Williams is, is you know, I, I, I in college I stayed in his um, I stayed in his his grandmother's or his not grandmother's I stayed in his mother's um, basement mm. right through college, and so we would wrestle and play fight, and I could see the 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 ticks that I would see when he 
got mad at whatever was happening in the world. Um, and I saw that happen. He composed himself, handled himself brilliantly. But I got so stretched on that one that I found myself watching your Facebook feed and just literally waiting for you to get on in the breaks and the lunch breaks to recap because I couldn't take watching the trial directly. And I'm sure many folks had shared that throughout. And so I got to commend you on doing that. And I have to just check in with you. You know, you are watching every, every, every gritty moment. And, and I gotta, I gotta, I gotta believe that somehow, somewhere that's weighing on you. Absolutely. It, it definitely is. And for me, I think that's why I have had to make more of a priority to uh, find time for self-care. And so uh, I think usually when I am extremely busy, especially when work picks up, the first thing to go out the window is the gym, my gym time. And I have made a promise to myself that through this trial, I will not compromise that time uh, because it is, it's the physical release that my body needs to be able to handle and process and remain balanced through this time. While you're taking all of this in, you're taking it in through your eyes, through your ears, through your heart, through your spirit. You have to have a place to release that. And so for me, I am remaining committed to getting in the gym and also using the live stream to communicate that to other people as we're all watching this together, that other people need to prioritize their health and they need to find time for self-care. Uh, because even if you're not conscious of it affecting you, we know as uh, people like Resma Menakim and Dr. Joy, uh, other healers in our community always tell us that we we hold the trauma in our body. And if we don't find a way to process it and cope with it in a healthy way, eventually it will catch up to us. So you're absolutely right, Anthony. So... There, there were some moments throughout this week that were, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to make a little scorecard, right? I think um, the contextualization from Donald Williams, the firefighter, um, some of the witnesses there helped to really share not only what happened, um, but be start to be clear and we start to see this distinction being drawn about the actions of the officers that night. Um, and then um, I was able to see your coverage of some of the police uh, there's a police sergeant and the and the highest ranking um, homicide officer um, in the in Minneapolis P- PD who are cooperating not only some of the details but but now starting to actually have clear statements that that uh, go against the defense's attempts. That's right. Um, we start to, of their case, right? So can you tell us a little bit about some of the those those scoring points? So we saw a huge shift. At the beginning of week one in the trial, we heard from bystanders, the people who were there who witnessed George Floyd die. And then we started to hear from uh, paramedics. We heard from George Floyd's girlfriend. And then uh, to close out the week, we started to hear from people who work for MPD. We heard from a sergeant and, as you stated, the lieutenant. Now, the one interesting thing before we talk about the lieutenant the sergeant, who is an African-American man, he stated, I don't know if people caught this, that he's on leave. He's one of the many, many, many officers who went on leave after George Floyd died. And the defense never asked to cross-examine him. So I think that hmm. when you analyze those two facts, you can start to draw a conclusion as to why they chose not to. But unlike him, uh, the lieutenant 
who who got on the stand, he ended up getting uh, cross-examined, uh, which probably wasn't good for the defense. Uh, because what we heard from Lieutenant Zimmerman is that the type of force that Chauvin used was unnecessary, and it is in the top tier of uh, force that can be used which can be considered deadly. And we even heard from mm. him in his own words. Lieutenant Zimmerman said, if you put a knee on someone's neck, you can kill them. And mm-hmm. Chauvin's <laughs> force was totally unnecessary. And those are quotes. Lieutenant Zimmerman said, totally unnecessary. Those were his words. And so the fact that we heard someone from the Minneapolis Police Department describe Chauvin's use of force in this way, denouncing it, saying that he knows it could be fatal, saying that it was unnecessary. This is key testimony that is is going to to play a critical role in the way that the the jury uh, determines um, the conviction. I think that when they're deliberating, Lieutenant Zimmerman's testimony is going to be very key because Lieutenant Zimmerman is considered a credible source. You know, Mm -hmm. he's considered an expert. He understands the training because he works for MPD. So his testimony holds a lot of weight. And I think that people who want to see a conviction in this case, I think that that was a, a huge win for the prosecution. That's, that, was a, that was a powerful turning moment. And I thank you for, for covering and laying that out because I think one of the things I've been waiting for all week is, you know, I've been laser focused on how the defense is trying to unravel and, and the witnesses and make them seem less credible because of their natural reactions to what they saw. Um, and so it was, it was, it felt good to hear somebody say specifically, this was unnecessary. That was, that helped my psyche a lot. Um, so, so this, is this, in, in what you know of what's coming up in terms of witnesses, because um, as the prosecution continues to lay out the case, um, what other experts do we know that are on deck or, or that are coming in to, to continue the prosecution's case? That it's the knee on the neck that was result of the murder and not, as the defense is trying to lay out, somehow some character uh, piece of George Floyd or, or something of George Floyd's doing. Well, we know that one of the witnesses pleaded the fifth so uh, he was uh, a witness for the prosecution, uh, but he has pleaded the fifth uh, because of some of the implications the defense tried to make. He was uh, with George Floyd at Cup Foods, and uh, the defense was trying to get the girlfriend of George Floyd to admit that this man had sold him drugs. So uh, that is uh, one thing that we had anticipated to see in this coming week, but we will not. The next big witness, I think, is going to be uh, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner. Now, if you remember in opening statements, the state laid out some documents that were signed off by the Hennepin County Medical Examiner. And in those documents, we saw uh, some of the language uh, surrounding homicide. And so 
Uh, despite the narrative that was put out by the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, if you, you might remember uh, John Elder, the PIO, had put out a press release right away after George Floyd died saying that a man had died of medical complications during an encounter with MPD. Well, what we saw in the documentation that was presented by the state was signed off by the medical uh, examiner with Hennepin County. It said something very different. And so I think that that is going to be a more powerful testimony that is going to help the prosecution build their case against Derek Chauvin. Miss Georgia, thank you for that recap. You're listening to Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, created and supported by Ampers, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center. We have a guest with us, Ms. Nakima Levy-Armstrong, who, for many of you know, uh, is one of our, our boots-on-the-ground sister soldiers who was holding it down in many ways and is connecting with us um, to, to help make sure to move the needle on not just the stuff inside the courtroom, but also what happens outside the courtroom to make sure we keep the pressure on our elected officials, on our society, on our government, um, and just make sure that we as a community are staying on the pulse of this. Because we know, regardless of the decision, we got a lot of work to do. So we're going to check in with one of our community leaders with boots on the ground. Um, Sister Nakima, welcome to Bearing Witness. Thank you for having me. So we we part of Bearing Witness is just to check in with you about um, how you are engaging, how are you are tracking during the course of this trial um, and what you're seeing in community? What's what's happening with you? Well, as Georgia talked about, it's been a very trying week within our community because of all the testimony that has come forward that has been very emotional, seeing um, our young Black people, seeing um, Black men in the community having to bear the weight of what they witnessed on May 25th of 2020. Additionally, we have been inundated with bystander videos that are very traumatizing and reinforce this notion of why many of us lack trust in our system of policing and in our criminal justice system. I have been watching the trial every day and trying to process and analyze what I have been seeing and share it with the public through a variety of mediums, whether it's through writing or uh, sitting on panels or using my own Facebook page to articulate what I observed um, during each day's proceedings and to try to contextualize it for the people, both from a legal perspective, but also from a social justice perspective as well. In our community, we are continuing to hold demonstrations so right now I'm actually um, in St. Paul um, because a demonstration happened a little while ago regarding a young um, 11-year-old Black boy who was choked by a sheriff's deputy just over a week ago. And this young African-American boy, unfortunately, is not the only victim of police abuse, even while we are in the midst of this trial um, surrounding the murder of George Floyd. Um, around the same time as, you know, the young man was choked by a sheriff's deputy, we had um, a young Black teenager who was punched by a Minneapolis police officer while other officers held him down. And so what we are seeing is a rise in these kinds of incidences that have been happening 
and it's making our community feel even less safe than we did before the start of this trial. So we're boots on the ground, continuing to advocate, pushing for legislative changes as well. I'm part of a coalition called the Minnesota Justice Coalition. We have eight bills right now that are pending at the legislature that are focused on this issue of transforming policing in the state of Minnesota. And if anyone wants to take a look at those bills, they can go to MN for Minnesota, mncoalition.org to learn more about what is being proposed by our various groups. Nakima, now I know that you have been boots on the ground for quite some time. This is not an issue that you started advocating for uh, after George Floyd. This is something that you have been advocating for for many, many years. Going back to the 18-day occupation at the 4th Precinct when Jamar Clark was killed. And many times publicly in front of city officials, I have heard you say, we tried to tell you guys that something needed to change. We tried to tell you that it was going to boil over. We, we, we tried to ask for some type of change to be made and you guys ignored us. Can you, for those who are unaware of how we got here, can you give some deeper context to the work that you have been doing long before we lost Brother, Brother Floyd? Um, and, and also, how you find the tenacity to keep pressing forward in this fight? Thank you for saying that, Georgia. Um, I would say for me, you know, this work goes back many years. I, when I went to University of Southern California um, for undergrad, I majored in African-American studies. Uh, went on to law school um, knowing I wanted to become a civil rights attorney to address these kinds of issues. And I would say that um, in Minnesota, I moved here in 2003. I began working on these issues around 2005 or 2006, um, back when I met the past president of the St. Paul NAACP, an elder in our community named Nathaniel Kalik. And he took me under his wing and he talked to me about the various issues that were impacting the Black community in the Twin Cities. And one of those issues at the top of the list dealt with the issue of police abuse and the overcriminalization of the African-American community. And we actually took on the St. Paul police during that time, and we took on the Ramsey County Sheriff's Office as well. We worked together to help shut down the state's largest gang database because police were using this database to track um, young African-Americans and other African-Americans in the community and to use that database to deny people their licenses to carry, for example, employment um, was being denied to people. And then also people were experiencing harassment at the hands of law enforcement if their information was in that secret database. And so even back then, you know, we had to um, advocate very fiercely in the community with government officials and even at the legislature to get some very basic policy changes. Um, I approach this work knowing that it's a marathon and not a sprint. And so in the midst of, um, I would say, how I got to the place where I am today was, um, you know, continuing to fight these battles uh, in St. Paul and around the Twin Cities with help from people in the community. But one life-changing moment for me happened in November of 2014 um, when I went to Ferguson, Missouri. I went there 
the day after the grand jury made the decision that they weren't going to indict Officer Darren Wilson. And I signed up to become a volunteer with the National Lawyers Guild. My first night in Ferguson, I was tear gassed. And that literally changed my life. Like at, at that point, I felt like I was in the midst of a war zone. I was very fearful, but God kept me going and helped me understand, you know, that this is a part of the struggle. And uh, when I came back to the Twin Cities, I was approached by young people saying that they were going to launch uh, BLM Minneapolis. Would I work with them? And I did. I became an advisor um, to the group, an informal advisor. And we, at that point, we started taking to the streets and taking to the highways. And the first demonstration that we did together was to shut down I-35 um, in solidarity with the people of Ferguson, as well as um, many other folks around the country who had been killed um, after Mike Brown. And um, we just kept demonstrating and pounding the pavement. And all of that, you know, led to us um, having a, ma a mass demonstration at the Mall of America in December of 2014, one month later, 11 of us were charged as alleged organizers. My name was on that list. And I was one of two people with the most charges. I got charged with eight misdemeanors mm. as part of that uh, Mall of America demonstration. Now, and this was while I was a law professor at the University of St. Thomas that, um, you know, I faced these charges. And rather than run, um, that's when my faith kicked into a whole other level. It was like God was mm. saying, don't let them silence you. Rise up and go to the next level. And so at that point, I just I just got mad. I just said, you know what? You're not going to silence me. If you want to charge me as an organizer, then I'm going to become one. And I, mm. I literally had to call an emergency press conference that night because, you know, my information was all in the media because I was a lawyer, because I was a law professor, all those things. And um, and and basically, we used that opportunity to articulate a, a strong position as to why we were out there fighting and connecting it to the civil rights movement and the stance that Rosa Parks took when she refused to give up her seat on December 1st of 1955. And we were letting the general public know that we will not back down. We will not shut up. We will not be relegated to a place of oppression and marginalization, but we're going to stand up and fight and speak our truth. And I said, we're going to fight these charges tooth and nail. And that's exactly what we did. We fought those charges for 11 months. The judge in that case was Judge Peter Cahill, the very same judge presiding mm. right now huh. um, over the Derek Chauvin trial. And after 11 months, I was actually a defendant and co-counsel for my own defense. Um, our charges got dismissed one week before Jamar Clark was killed. And that was mm. all providential. Because my charges were dismissed, my faith increased even more. And then I got a call in the middle of the night on November 15th. Um, it was like early in the morning at that point. Um, November 15th, around 4 a.m. from the now chief, Madeira Arredondo, who was the assistant chief, letting me know that a young black man had been killed by police. By that point, I had also become the Minneapolis NAACP president, which is why I got that call. And I said to the chief, was he armed? And the chief said, I don't think so. I could not go back to sleep. By 7 a.m., I looked on Facebook. I saw accounts from Black witnesses who said that when the police came on the scene, they treated them like criminals. They pepper sprayed them. They physically pushed them when they were simply trying to get answers as to why Jamar Clark was shot in the head at point blank range within literally 
61 seconds of officers encountering him. And so after I saw those accounts, I just said, well, I, I can I have to do something. I didn't know what I could do. So I just ca- contacted the members of the NAACP and I said, meet me at the spot where this young man was killed. So 8 a.m., we showed up there. There was no one on the streets, no yellow tape, no nothing. You wouldn't have even known that anyone was killed except that we saw some blood on the leaves near the tree by where mm. Jamar was killed. And I just said, let's start knocking on doors and seeing if any witnesses will share what happened. And that's what we did. And that led to people coming in the streets, telling their stories. We held a press conference, let people tell their stories because we had to start countering the traditional narrative of the media, right? And so I'm so glad Georgia's in this work because Georgia's focus is on changing the narrative. So often, police um, use the media as an extension of their operations, And that's what MPD has been used to. And so we had to bring out our people who witnessed this uh, atrocity of what happened to Jamar Clark to tell their truth from their perspective and to let the world know they're not standing alone. And so all of that, Mm. you know, with a bunch of groups coming together, it led to an 18-day occupation outside the 4th Precinct. And I believe that that has marked a turning point in Minnesota's history because it taught us we can withstand blizzards we can withstand yeah. aggressive police we Come can on, withstand white yeah. supremacy and we can stand up for the life of a young black man who deserved to be alive and to continue to fulfill his purpose upon this earth and so that's been you know my journey um and of course i've kept going from there by the power of god that's the only force <laughs> that you know is able <laughs> to help me withstand everything that we go through from being on the front lines of this fight for racial justice. You know, listening to you, one of the things that comes up for me that, that I haven't been able to do that you are, are masterfully helping me to do is, is to know, um, is to know that, that there's work to be done and that helps keep me going forward. I think one of the things that happened this week is I got stuck in the, minutia of this trial and then had a hard time being able to um, contextualize for the continued work. I think that's what was missing. I wasn't able to put a, a a hand or a pulse to, okay, this is happening, but then also there's all this other work that we've we've got to, and it, it, it puts it into a greater context. It, it lets me focus more on that arc, right? As opposed to just this moment. And I think what hearing your story, hearing your work allows me to be able to have that to focus on. Because many folks that I was speaking to throughout the week just couldn't tune into the trial. And then also, you know, but but wanted to still be doing something proactive and, and wanting to know where to direct that. And hearing folks, hearing your story allows me to remember that in the midst of my own struggles throughout the week. So I really appreciate that. And, 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 it, and it makes me wonder, as you do that work, is that the thing that, 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 keeps you able to withstand the onslaught of having to go back through the moments of this case for George Floyd? What, you know, you, you talked about your faith. Uh, is that how you're, is that what you're using to guide you through this moment? Absolutely. My faith guides me through this moment. And I, I want to remind people um, who are of faith and of no faith that the signs of God are all over this process. When I think mm-hmm. about the nine-year-old child, her name is Judea which is considered to be the place where Jesus Christ was born. I don't think that's a coincidence. She had love on her. 
She had the word love on her sweatshirt. And I'm, I got chills even as I just said what I just said. And then mm. I think about Darnella Frazier, who had the mindset to get her cousin to the front door of Cup Foods and then to turn around and say, let me go record this. She was exactly positioned where God needed her to be to document the entire situation. And no matter what happened, you see that she was steadfast in holding that camera. She didn't care mm. what was going on, who was saying what. Every now and then she chimed in. She knew her responsibility was to document exactly what happened. Had no idea that it was going to go viral and twenty and uh, 50 million people would see that video. All she did was walk in obedience to what God asked her to do in that moment. And then I think about Donna Williams. What are the chances that someone with an MMA fighting background would happen upon the scene at that exact moment and see the technique that Derek Chauvin was using to try to cut off the air supply of George Floyd? Mm. And then what are the chances that a white female firefighter trained as a first responder in EMT would happen upon the scene and understand to communicate, check the pulse, check the pulse. Mm. So... None of that happened by accident. George Floyd himself was telling people that he was going to shock the world and he was going to change the world. So God had a purpose and a plan in the entire situation. Even though it's very difficult for us to grapple with, that's when we have to press into our faith and understand that no matter what the system tries to do, that God is in control. And for those who know the story of Jesus Christ, we know that he went around, he spoke the truth, he was countercultural. He helped to heal people. And what did the government and religious leaders do? They punished him through the criminal justice system and he was ultimately crucified. So he's letting mm. us know this is what aspects of this world is about. But he told his disciples, you are to stand anyway. You are to do my work anyway. You are to be a light unto this world anyway. And so that is where my focus is. When all these things are going on, I'm understanding I, I have to get in the weeds and then get out of the weeds and look at the big picture. And the big picture for us goes on more than 400 years in terms of what our ancestors have been through. And even though this trial is traumatizing, it pales in comparison to what the people on slave plantations went through, what black women went through when they were having to labor and, and be uh, forcibly assaulted and forcibly bearing children and everything else that they had to do and, and how black men were treated as property. No, no safety whatsoever for black men, women, or children. And so if we could have people in the midst of that kind of environment still stand up and fight, engaging in slave insurrections, right? You know, having people record their narratives, Frederick Douglass coming out as one of the foremost orators in the history of this country without a formal education, then who are we to stop and give up and complain because of some shenanigans we see happening in a trial? We mm. come from a history of people who weren't even allowed to testify in trial at trials, weren't even allowed to be witnesses or serve on juries. And so we understand the long game as far as our history is concerned, then we can have the spirit of tenacity and perseverance that it takes to get through this and hopefully to ultimately see justice prevail. You know, Sister Nakeem, I want to thank you for reminding us to walk in our faith, walk by faith and not by sight. It, it reminds me of um, a, a saying in the Bible for such a time as this. And it, it 
reminds me too how things that we have gone through in our past can prepare us for such a, a time as this. And even knowing, you know, your journey and what you endured uh, fighting for justice for Jamar Clark and then Philando Castile and now George Floyd. And I, I even think about uh, Sister Kimberly Handy Jones, who was summoning mothers to the city before George Floyd cried out for his mama. And so I'm going to continue to remind people that Minneapolis was the epicenter before George Floyd. That you were doing this work, that she was doing this work, trying to make a change, trying to make a justice system that works for everyone, that works for people like us. And so I, I want to thank you for reminding us and, and centering us in that thought that, you know, this moment has God all in it and uh, that we must continue to lean in our faith and, and, not, uh, and not by our sight. So thank you. Thank you for that. Absolutely. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. But God hmm. sent us here for a reason. You know, I'm, I'm listening to you all talk, and, and, and I have to remind folks that, you know, what, what is being demonstrated here um, is connections to an Afro-Asiatic wisdom tradition. Um, prior to colonialism, prior to Eurocentric co-optation, um, the, the scriptures and the lessons that um, uh, Sister Armstrong and Sister Ford are talking about are part of an Afro-Asiatic wisdom tradition that has been told over and over again from many perspectives. And so even those who have different faith traditions can recognize the faith wisdom that is being spoken of here. And I just want to make that connection because we always um, come to, in our conversations, the question of how are you being you in this moment, which is part of this wisdom tradition. So I, I have to ask that question for, of, of you. I know you've spoken a little bit to what drives you through this moment, but but how are you being you in these moments? Well, I would say that for me being me means continuing to be grounded in who I really am and asking myself, who are you really, right? When you're facing these obstacles, when you're seeing these things that might be a distraction or might be frustrating, I have to ask myself those questions so that I can stay focused in the moment, but also looking at the big picture in terms of what we are trying to accomplish through our demonstrations and through our advocacy and everything else that we go through. So I have to spend time meditating in order to stay grounded. I have to spend time in prayer in order to stay grounded. I have to spend time in community. So I have to spend time around my family in order to stay grounded. And so I take the time, I give myself permission to take time for self-care when I need to. So this morning was my first morning sleeping in since I don't know. I don't know how long. <laughs> and I gave myself permission to do that. I looked at my schedule. I said, okay, thank goodness. I can actually take some, some time to sleep in beyond, beyond my normal time because I know I need that rest. You know, there was one night this week where I didn't sleep at all. So I, again, I had to give myself permission, right? And so as a woman, and when I'm ready to go get my nails done or something like, you know, that's a form <laughs> of self-care. That I, that I embrace and say, this is a part of taking care of me, right? Because nobody's going to do it for us. We have to be intentional about it. Um, and, and, you know, you talked about earlier being uh, as a Black man and how that anger rose up in you, right? And you had to mm -hmm. figure out 
where is this coming from? You know, this agitation and this frustration. And that's all normal and it's natural. And then it's making time to bring yourself back into balance and figuring out what does that mean for you? Does that mean going on a walk, spending time with your kids in prayer, um, um, going to play soccer? I mean, what is it for you, right? That's what each person has to figure out so you can bring yourself back unto yourself and then be useful to do what you need to do um, for the rest of, you know, our society and our community. You know, and I, I would say for me, Anthony, I grew up admiring people like Maya Angelou and Tupac, storytellers. They would tell stories. And I think there was always a part of me that wanted to be able to use my voice to empower my community and to make positive change. And so how I'm being in this moment, how I'm being me in this moment is by telling our stories in a way that nobody else can. Being a mother and having the compassion and empathy to create a safe space for our nine-year-old sister who is going through so much, uh, that that's the best way that I can be me in this moment. That's the best way that I can contribute to our community. That's the best way I can contribute to to making positive change is by showing up and hearing our stories, listening to our stories and uh, breaking them down uh, for our community in a way that they can receive them. So for me, I know a lot of people have been reaching out and I appreciate it. You know, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? But this is, as a storyteller, this is the work that we do. And uh, while it can be tough sometimes, it, it has to be done. And it's only for a season. So uh, like Sister Nakima said, setting that time aside, caring for yourself, but still getting up every day knowing that this work has to be done and that it's only going to be heavy lifting for a certain season. You know, I, I thank you all for the perspective that you bring not only to this conversation, but um, in teaching through your example how we can be and, and, it, and, it, and it dawns on me that listening to How You Be You is connected to doing the work, staying with the work, that that, that is life-giving in and of itself. And, and I think that's important. You know, it, 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 for me, how I'm being me in this moment, um, in the moment where I lost control <laughs> in ways that, that um, Brother Williams on the stand was able to, to keep, he had to simultaneously be true to himself and not give over to the myth that his response is anger. And I find it telling that in the video, the things that the defense attorney was trying to cross-examine him to paint him as angry in his words, saying, you're a bum or, or reacting. Later on, you got to hear the video. There was no voice raised in there. It was a matter of declarative statement. And he said the statement, I grew in professionalism. So again, sir, it's fair to say that you grew angrier and angrier. No, I grew professional and professional. I stayed in my body. You can't pay me out to be angry. For me, to be me in this moment helps means that I have to remember um, that in in the moments when I when I just when that when the anger overcomes me and I'm frustrated, 
My impulse was to go be close to the place to memorialize my brother, George Floyd, who was, who was slain. And it was being in that space and walking, getting there and seeing there was four other cars who had shown up. And I got to talk to some of these folks and they had gone there for the same reason I had when I went there. They just needed to go somewhere at that moment. And they ended up at George Floyd Square. We gather. Their, their fight or flight may be an impulse, but we know that there's more impulses. And one of those is to gather, to bear witness. Um, because you went there, Sister Nakima, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote theologian and, 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 and author and just wisdom giver, Dolores Williams, who wrote the book Sisters in the Wilderness. And she talks about the story of Hagar, an Egyptian woman put into captivity under Abraham, something we need to investigate if we're going to investigate our Christian story, right? But she's the only one in the entire Afro-Asiatic biblical wisdom account that is the Bible um, to give God a name, the one who sees me. I think it's telling that as long as we go back, one of the traditions that we have in our community is to bear witness, to be, to tell the story and to keep the story alive so that we don't lose sight of where we've been so that we can know where we're going. That true essence of Sankofa. I want to thank you so much for joining us and letting us check in with you. And, and I know there's so much in so many places. So we're going to have you back. We got to break more of this stuff down. But thank you for checking in um, and letting us be able to, to, to pass along your wisdom as you bear witness from your perspective throughout this whole thing. We always like to end our show with uh, uh, this saying. So I'm going to kick it back to you, uh, the independent journalist with the mostest, Miss Georgia. How do we end? Well, you know, we have to have Dr. Joy on the show. So we're still trying to get her booked. But in the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. Thank you for listening. This is Bearing Witness. This is Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia. This show is a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, in partnership with KMOJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center.